Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast. Today's guest is John Brown. He is the guitarist and founding member of the band Monuments, which you may know of as one of the earlier bands in the gent world, along with Periphery and Tesseract. Monuments was there from pretty much the beginning, maybe not quite the very beginning, but pretty close to it, as we talk about in this episode. But what I wanted to talk to John about more than anything is his other project, RiffHard.com. RiffHard is an online education platform for modern metal guitarists that has a little bit of a different focus than all the other schools out there, which is rhythm guitar. And it seems kind of obvious because as a guitarist, rhythm is what you're doing 95% of the time. But as John noticed years ago when he was thinking about the idea for the school, nobody really talks about that in the online guitar education space. And he is one of the absolute best fucking rhythm guitarists you will ever find. So he was a perfect person to start the platform. And full disclosure, I was part of this thing for a while. I helped out kind of get it off the ground and it's been a while since I've worked on it. But since then, since I walked away from it, well, not walked away isn't the right word, since I stopped being part of it, it took off, so we can clearly see that the problem was obviously my involvement. And so what I wanted to do is catch up with John and talk about what exactly happened to make Riff Hard take off the way that it did and how he used his platform as a musician, as a guitar influencer to start this school that has become wildly successful in the past several months. So if you're interested in the whole idea of like how do musicians use their platform to create other income streams, we get super detailed into that with Riff Hard, endorsements, YouTube, all that kind of stuff. So check it out. But before we get into the episode, first, a couple things that you can do to support us if you like us. Number one, if you share it on social media, that really helps us out a lot because Spotify and Apple Podcasts and the other platforms really don't help all that much. So anything you can do there helps us a lot. Number two, you can buy some merch if you really like us. I just designed a bunch of new stuff that I think is pretty cool. You can buy it at the link in the show notes. And lastly, if you really, really like us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. Patrons get access to every episode of the podcast a week early. There's a members-only Discord server that I'm in all the time. Also, if you would like me to review your creative work of any kind, whether that is a graphic design portfolio, photography, videography portfolio, your band, a podcast, whatever it is, if you would like my feedback on it, you can get that if you are a member at the $10 and up level. So you can sign up for that at the link in the show notes. And with that out of the way, let's get into it. John Brown, welcome to the show. Hey, Finn. Lovely to speak to you again. <laughs> I'm excited to have you on. Now, what I kind of wanted to get out of this episode is really to tell the story of, I guess, how you have played your cards to end up where you are now. I think 
Riff Hard is to me one of the most impressive kind of pivots that I'm aware of in music where someone has turned their, you know, position in the industry uh, in a band that, you know, with all due respect, is not the biggest band in the world. Like you guys certainly have a following, but it's, you know, you guys are not, you know, five figure death punch or whatever. And that is the exact reason why I think that's so cool that you did this. So I wanted to explain to people what Riff Hard is and how you kind of played your cards to get there. Because I think it's a really cool story that a lot of people can learn from. Well, yeah, thank you. I think it's also about just, you know, Misha talks about this a lot, especially in a lot of interviews about having multiple income streams yeah. than just relying on the band. As you said, Monuments isn't a huge band. Yes, we've played all over the world, but Five Finger Death Punch play arenas and we play like 100 to 300 people. <laughs> right. But that's exactly why I think this is such a cool story because, you know, I'm not going to say it's easy for Ozzy Osbourne to start a venture. Like starting a business is always hard, but you know, if you have to be Aussie to start a business, well, then that's kind of off limits for the most of us. But to get your band to where Monuments is at is not unattainable for, you know, a lot of people listening to this. So I think that it's inspiring that you have been able to do so many cool things with, you know, the audience that you have. And also, well, why don't we start by telling people what Riff Hard is? Because I think that will kind of frame a lot of this. Well, Riff Hard is the first of its kind um, in the fact that it teaches rhythm guitar, which is something that's not ever really been taught before. So that was kind of a niche in the market where, like, it's you do it 90% of the guitar uh, time on the guitar, yet no one's actually ever taught it. It's kind of pretty silly. <laughs> so all these other uh, online education platforms for guitarists, 90% of what they teach is lead is solos, leads. Yeah, immediately, 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 immediately. And, and stuff that you're like, it's impressive to like listen to all that stuff, but it doesn't really show you what you're going to be doing. Right. Like, you know, I mean, you're a guitar player. Well, we're a guitar player, Finn. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know if you still play it. Eh, you know, once every two years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When's the last time you picked it up, actually? I'm intrigued. Probably has been two or three years just because I, you know, if I ever needed to record a piece of music, I, I would pick it up, but I just haven't made time for that. I understand why. I mean, it's one of those things that you need to be completely into and you're playing it every day in order to, you know, sort of see results. Well, especially because my frame of reference is people like you, uh, <laughs> where it's like, you know, you are like so many, like millions of miles ahead of me that it just kind of feels like, oh, what's the point of even trying? <laughs> you say that, but then you just mentioned Five Finger Death Punch, which have riffs that are so simple that it's almost like they're forcibly simple. But I bet you to everyone listening to this who thinks that shit is so simple that anybody could do it, try playing it doubled as tight as Zoltan does and let me know how that sounds. It's not going to sound good, especially with like a low gain tone like he uses where he can't hide anything. Yeah, exactly. Like I think that like people perceptively think that things are easy, but I found that normally the more simple that they are, the harder they are to play tight. And that has been my experience too, which is why I think Riff Hard is so cool. So you guys teach people how to be badass rhythm guitarists because that's what even like even the most you know, John Petrucci plays a lot of rhythm parts, like even the fanciest, like most well-known lead player in the world, like they play rhythm parts, too. And w without the rhythm part, you don't have a song. I mean, yes, you can play lead 
all the time. But where's where's the fucking song? <laughs> right. And so it seems so obvious, but I think that's such a like smart insight to start a business around. I think so too. Yeah, I think we uh, we definitely latched onto a niche. And obviously, I'm I'm a rhythm guitar player. That's what I list myself as. And I saw that no one's ever taught, it, and it took me so many years to work out what it is to get to where I was that it's kind of almost like a fast track for all these people. I've just kind of dumped everything in that I've learned over the last 15 years. And we see massive improvements in people within one to one week to a month. It's insane, actually, just by focusing on the right stuff, how much you can actually improve. So for everybody listening who hasn't seen it, what is what is the content like? So if I sign up for Riff Hard today, what happens next? So basically, you go onto your dashboard on the site. There's a bunch of different sections that you can go into. There's pre-workout, which is like a warm-up routine. A down-picking gym, which focuses on the the rhythmic aspect of your playing. And it's focusing on down-picking, because if you're going to be a metal guitar player, then down-picking definitely 100% is the technique that you should learn, because it definitely sounds better for riffs. And that's why people like Scott Ian, James Hetfield, and all those thrash guys, even with that fast music, they used to down-pick as much as they can, because it was just tighter, more aggressive, more percussive, and basically everything that you want out of a metal guitar sound. Um, we have songwriting, a songwriting section on there. I do a live event every single month called Riff Rescue, where I take a member's riff, and then I try and manipulate it into multiple different ways for songwriting ideas. We have a really, really active Facebook group as well with a schedule that you can follow. So it sort of organizes all the content of the site so that you have something that you can work towards. But there's so much stuff on the site and obviously we're adding more constantly as well. And I'm guessing you don't publicly disclose how many members there are, but I know how many members there are and it is a sizable number. It is a very sizable number, yes. I mean, if we take just the amount of people that have gone through the site, it's pretty it's pretty massive. Yeah, it's it's a lot of people and it's going to be even more people in the future. So I, I think of it as like, and it's strange to me that nobody else has copied this because it's been around for a while. But if you want to learn how to be a badass metal guitarist, which which the core of metal guitar is rhythm, then this is the place to go. Thank you. I think so, too. I mean, you've seen all the content. Um, yes. You used to work on it. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously I'm obviously biased here since I've since I've worked on this, but it really took off after I stopped working on it. So you can see that clearly the uh, magic ingredient or the problem here was me. So that's why I'm so excited about where it's gone since then. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, as you say, like metal guitar players, it's weird. It's just one of those things that everyone sort of skips the rhythm step, or at least 95% of guitar players. You get the guitar players that are, you know, they start off and they just want to play rhythm and they're already good at it. And then they don't really ever try to play any lead guitar. And then... That's me. <laughs> and then there's people that just skip rhythm altogether try and play as fast as possible. And then later down the, li the line, they're like, oh, I don't know how to play with a drummer. Right. Because <laughs> I did that. And <laughs> nearly everyone that I knew did that. So it's like, well, let's try and help some people out with this. It's very interesting to me. Like I had such a wake up call when I started working with Al and stuff like because, you know, he's the one that taught me the majority of stuff I know about a recording. And, you know, I learned some stuff from other people after that. But he's really the person that you know, kind of gave me the foundation. And the biggest thing I learned was that I was a way, way worse guitarist than I thought I was. 
<laughs> because there's such a huge difference between what sounds good playing in your bedroom by yourself and what sounds good recorded, doubled in a mix. It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? That no one really understands just how bad they are until they record themselves. It was horrifying. Yeah, it's horrifying. Because <laughs> I remember that's kind of what made me focus so much on this stuff. I remember hearing back what I'd played and I was like, wait a minute, I rule. Why does this <laughs> right. like, uh, that sounds like shit. There must be some sort of mistake. Or you're you're actually in a rehearsal room with other people and you can feel the vibe going shit because you can't play in time. Right. Have you ever had right. that vibe? Yes. I've definitely had that vibe more than once. Yes. It was awful and embarrassing. And there was a lot of people watching. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people being a dozen, but I was like 19. So that felt like a lot. Yeah. It's just, it's one of those things, man. It's just, I, I it's so weird. I, I, I think guitar is the only instrument that I can think of where that happens. Yeah. Where people really don't care or sort of neglect the fundamentals, or I guess what it is, is it's not that they don't care. It's just that they believe that they're much better at the fundamentals than they actually are. Yeah. And also they're not really listening as well. You know, when you play your instrument, you're not really listening to what's going on. You've not got a hundred. Exactly. Yeah. So you can't really ever understand what you're playing until you've recorded it. Yeah. The other thing that I learned from Al and Andrew Wade and some other people is how true it is that tone is in the hands. And I mean, you're a great example of that. You know, someone like, and the, the way that I found this out, I've told the story before, but I'll tell it again because it, it's, it's a great example of this. So I have like a shitty Ibanez, like a $600 Ibanez or something like that. And uh, Al had to record something for one of the Creative Live classes that we were doing. Like he had forgotten to record some part and it was, you know, an hour beforehand or whatever. And the only guitar we had was my guitar that had strings on it that were a month old or something like that. And I was like, well, you can use mine, but it's, you know, it's going to, it's going to sound really bad. And he's like, well, let me see what I can do with it. And it sounded like 10 times better than anything I had ever done with that guitar using the same, you know, the same amp sims and stuff. And I was like, oh, this is bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, that's another thing that guitar players don't think about, like, like stuff like that. They, they're playing it, but they're not playing it. Right. I don't think about how hard to hit with a pick or how hard they should be pressing down with their left hand to, to fret certain things. It's really, really strange that all of these little nuances get forgotten. Right. It's Yeah, but when it's other instruments, like, say, a violin, you have to think about those fundamentals because otherwise, I mean, violin especially is one of those instruments that just sounds absolutely terrible until you get it perfect. It's like, it just sounds like a screeching cat. So you're kind of forced into that sound. I've never tried, but I can imagine. So, okay. So, so that's what Riff Heart is school online school for rhythm metal rhythm guitarists. And it's doing great. Let's talk about how you got there. So, yeah. So let's start from the very beginning, because I think an interesting thing about your situation, I would compare it to periphery is the nature of the fans that you have, like the gent fans, I guess lends itself to these kind of opportunities in a way that is not true of other genres. Like, you know, a gent band that draws 300 people a night can make way more money than a pop punk band that drives 300 people a night, I think, because those fans, for whatever reason, seem to be receptive to these kind of offers in a way that just isn't really true of other genres. I think it's just the musicality or the mindset of the person. And like when I say that, what I mean is that 90% of the fans of this style of music do play an instrument. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas I think that with pop punk, a lot of it is to do with, you know, people just enjoy listening to it. There's a definite right. fundamental difference there between the two. That kind of thing expands to a few other genres as well. But I think it's also dependent on finding your particular niche. I mean, like, for example, John Petrucci has the guitar universe, which he's done with Andy James, Jason Richardson, which is obviously a big hit because mm -hmm. people are there every single year. So I think it's, yeah, I think I just saw my niche and I was like, yeah, that's kind of what I want to do. And yeah, I think the genre that I chose helped a lot in that situation. Well, I didn't choose it. It's just kind of, I, I loved my sugar. Tell me if I'm wrong here. You would know better than I do, but I would consider Monuments one of the sort of founding gent bands. Yeah, I would say so, but I would be lying if I didn't say that Ackle was the reason that I got into this sort of particular sound. Now, Ackle is the guitar player from Tesseract. Okay. Who I consider one of the first three. For me, the first three outside of like Meshuggah or Sixth or Candiria or something like that, yeah. I would say it's Paul Ortiz, who played with Chimp Spanner, who had an album out in 2001, I think, or 2003. It was very, very early on. Um, obviously, Periphery, Misha was posting demos back 2004, 2005, mm -hmm. and then Ackle Tesseract. I mean, Tesseract started in 2003. Okay. They're kind of the first three that I would consider. And then I met Ackle in 2002. So that kind of sound just sort of came into my being. Got it. And when did the first Monuments recordings come out, like real ones? The first album came out in 2012, but the EP was released in 2010. So, so you had been doing this stuff for quite a while before you ever actually put a proper recording out. Yeah, I mean, there was a there was a band before Monuments that um, with me and Ackle from Tesseract. It was called Fell Silent. And we were signed right. to Sumerian Records and our album came out in 2008 and it was very similar styled. It was just, in a way, a little bit more raw and less refined. And when did you start to get a following as, you know, a guitarist? I'd say after the first Monuments record came out, that was kind of the start. And also, like, you know, I think it was after Facebook, really. I think Facebook was kind of the beginning, obviously, with MySpace that was kind of the beginning of it. But I think Facebook is when you started seeing these guitar players get more following individually. So I definitely would say after the first record came out. So yeah, 2012, 2013. Did you have the intent of getting a following as a guitarist or did that just happen naturally? Or tell me how that happened. I think that the first reason for it was actually the EMG TV videos. Because I, I, I didn't really do any video work before... 2013, 2014, maybe little snippets here and there. But after I did those EMG TV videos, I started noticing that I was getting a lot more guitar players adding me and you know, wanting to talk about my gauge of strings. And <laughs> <laughs> That was a joke, a bad joke. I'm sorry. I think YouTube play, played a huge part in that following thing as well, for sure. But I'd say around that sort of time period, somewhere between 2011 and 2014 is when it sort of started. I mean, did you just kind of notice it and you're like, oh, I might as well lean into this? Or is that something you set out to do? Or tell me how that happened. Not exactly. No, it was just I think it just came with the territory and the genre. I mean, there's some genres where you won't know the names of anyone in the band except the singer. Right. And then with this genre, it's kind of like all the names of the members are known because, you know, you have drummers that are sick, bass players that are sick. And singers also that are sick. So it's kind of like, I also believe that it's one of those genres where you can get away with like, say you 
are playing a gig and your singer can't sing, you can get away with it. I can't really name many other genres of music where you could actually do that. I would say the singer in in Gent is the least important member of the band. There's going to be some egos ruined by that comment. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, a lot of the more popular bands in the genre have changed singers and it didn't hurt them. Uh, Yeah, to a degree. Yeah. I mean, even with pop bands, you can sort of get away with it if you're at the right level. I mean, Van Halen is a good example of that. Um, even though a lot of people do hate the Hager years. I prefer it. My favorite song by Van Halen is Humans Being. In fact, actually, I watched Twister last night and it just brought me straight back to that moment of wanting to play guitar. <laughs> Hot Summer Nights is my favorite Van Halen song. Uh, yes, that's good as well. Yeah. I think, yeah, it is the least. No, I've, I don't want to say that because I disagree totally. I think vocals make songs. I do but... too. But from a fan, like, I don't think that the singers and gent bands have the same sort of fanboy type of dynamic as guitarists or drummers do in gent i think it's because as i say the audience is musicians yeah i think it's a a big factor of it i mean it's it's pretty similar audience i would say well not maybe not similar but the same mindset as audiences that go to sort of steve Vai and joe satriani concerts Mm -hmm. rather they're musicians and they want to see their favorite musician in the band show what he's got that's the dynamic. What was the first sign that you got that there was like industry interest in you? You mentioned the EMG TV thing, which at that time I think was a, a pretty big platform. What was the first time that you were like, oh, people in the industry care about me? I think it was when I got my first proper endorsement. So that would have been with Ibanez in 2000 and maybe 12, maybe 11. I can't remember the exact year. But that's the first time I got given anything. And that was based on Fell Silent? No, no, no. This was Monuments. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I had one endorsement with Fell Silent, which was with Engel, but I still had to buy it. Right. But this was the first time where I hadn't had to actually give any money. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of these endorsements, for people who don't know, is like you get artist pricing, which is what, 30 or 40% off or something? Sometimes it's more. Yeah, sometimes it depends on the company. It depends on your, basically your profile. Got it. That's an interesting conversation, how that part of the industry changed dramatically. Tell me about that. So my first deal with Engel, it was based off how many shows we played per year. But obviously now it's shifted and it's about how many followers does this person have? Can I sell my instruments through his? (laughs) That's basically what it is. Sure. You are basically an ad. Yeah, I mean that's you're you're they're not working with you out of charity like they hope that you sell product for them. Yeah, and that's that's also where the word free doesn't exist because if they give you something then they want something in return. There's no such thing as free. Right. Well, let, let's talk about that. So what are the um I I've I've been on the buy side of a lot of influencer campaigns with musicians and my kind of biggest pain point there is that they oftentimes don't do what they say they're going to do. Oh yeah. Like, hey, can you post about this? Yeah, no problem, man. And then it never happens. And then you sort of have to either be an asshole and bother this person or just like accept that they're never going to do it, which kind of sucks because you paid them or gave them shit and they never did anything. I think it just um, I think it's all about just being transparent as an artist. Like, for example, I don't really review or show a product of something that I don't like. Um, so if it comes down to that, then I will tell the company that 
hey, I don't really like this and I don't want to give a negative review about it. So how's about you just take it back? Mm-hmm. And how, um, how is that received? Um, it's normally received all right, actually, because I think that they would prefer that rather than seeing someone smash their products up in a video. Which has happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is funny, obviously, yeah. But I mean, yeah. that, if you do that, you've ruined those doors with that company, right? So, and and also, rather... you may have ruined somebody's job. There is that as well. Some people don't think about the repercussions of their actions. So, just smashing that up, if it's been sent to you, could yeah, that artist relations person could lose their job. Yeah, even if you don't give a shit about your relationship with the brand, I think you should consider what is that going to do to the artist relations person or marketing manager, whoever those people are. So. Something to think about before you talk shit about a product. I also think that, you know, if you start doing that where you get gifted something and then you don't post about it, that word gets around. The music industry is so small that it kind of people talk. Yep. I mean, there's definitely people that uh, I'm a huge fan of and I like on a personal level. But when we talk about working with them, it's always like, yeah, but he's a flake and he's not going to do anything. So we can't work with him. <laughs> and it sucks because I want to, because I think this person is awesome. I really like them. They do great work, but it's like, if they're going to be a flake, it's just business and that, you know, we can't work with them. It's getting over that first hurdle. I find for a lot of musicians, you know, once you've tried it once, you're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> like <laughs> Following through on your commitments, you mean? No, 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 not necessarily that. What I mean is like say, replying to an email. That wasn't so bad. Uh, not even that. I'm saying like, say you wanted to go on a podcast or film a video or do something that's slightly away from what you would usually do. Once you've done it once, it, even just imagine the first time that you went to Nam with the amount of people that are there. If you have anxiety, you have to get over that. And I think it's very similar to that for a lot of people. Maybe it's not they're trying to be a dick. Maybe it's just that they're scared slightly of something. <laughs> sure, I, I, that's a good point, and I should be I should be more sympathetic. That's that's probably true. Okay, so so you got a little bit of a following here. You noticed you started to get some endorsements and stuff like that. What was the next big inflection point, like where you realized that you had kind of gone from just being a guy, you know, that they gave a free guitar to, to someone that a lot of companies cared about? So it was 2014. Nam actually funnily enough. So I went to, that was actually the time period that I did those EMG TV videos. Mm -hmm. So at that now I had a signing at EMG TV with Ken Susie of Unearth and Kerry King of Slayer, um, which was terrifying. Sure. That was my first NAM as well. So I did that signing. I had a signing at the Laney booth with Kiko from Megadeth. Again, another massive, massive, massive guitar player who's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and then Mayanez approached me at that NAM as well. So, and then I got my signature model from Mayanez. So that was kind of like, I think that that was the turning point. So you had the EMG TV videos. I got the deal from Mayonez. Yeah, that was a good year. Did you do anything to seek those out? Or did that just sort of, was that just a byproduct of all the things you had done? Or tell me how those actually came together. Um, well, obviously, I went to the NAM show to obviously intermingle with uh, with all the companies. That's kind of the reason I think that most people go to NAM is to hang out with friends, get drunk, and meet some companies that might be able to get them some gear or offer them a deal. So yeah, I went there, did the MGTV videos. But the reason that the Mayanez thing happened is because their US distributor knew who I was and raved to me about 
about me to Mayonez. And how did they know who you were? Um, I guess they were fans of monuments. I'm pretty sure that was what it was. Okay. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. When did you start doing YouTube? Quite late on, actually. So I was doing YouTube videos for other companies where I would go on like EMG TV, go to Mayonez in Poland and film some stuff for them. But when I actually started doing YouTube was only about three years ago, maybe four. 
years ago. And it always came down to the fact that I was a broke-ass musician and couldn't afford a camera. <laughs> and how much of a difference... And how many subscribers do you have now? 35,000. Okay. And how much of a difference do you think that has made in your profile and the kind of opportunities that you've gotten? Quite a lot, actually. Even though that's a relatively small number in comparison to what other YouTubers are, I found now that companies are more interested in what's being offered on the channel rather than necessarily the numbers, if that makes sense. Tell me more about that. Well, as I say, they want to sell a product. They don't care how many views it has. They want to have how many products have sold. And I think that for the amount of people that I have, that my sort of insight is taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Then we, I don't mean to big myself up in that, but <laughs> they've basically seen that I can sell some products for them. That's basically ultimately sure. what it is. So tell me if I'm understanding this correctly. So there might be other channels that get more views, but if this is a, and I'm not putting this down, but like if this is a skit where a guy dresses up in a chicken suit and plays a Britney Spears song on the guitar, that's going to get more views, but it might not and probably won't sell more product. Exactly. It's all about the uh... conversion. Yeah, conversion. That's exactly the word I was looking for. Yeah, the conversion rate. That's yeah. what they're interested in now. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it used to be who's got the most amount of followers. I want to give it to them, but now it's the conversion rate. They want to see how many conversions you have, and then they'll basically do that with how much money they offer you as well to do it. So this is really the central point that I wanted to get out of this conversation is that it's very easy for people to get lost in the numbers and think that you have to have a massive following in order to get opportunities and make a living as a musician. And you are proof that that's not true. And I don't mean to that as a backhanded compliment because you certainly have a respectable following, but like anybody can get 35,000 subscribers on YouTube. Like that's, I'm not going to say it's easy, but that's attainable for anybody. Yeah. You just have to find your niche. That's basically what it is. Find something that is unique to you. Yeah. And as a couple other examples, like Two people I talk about all the time, uh, Johnny Frank, who used to be in Attack Attack that does this project now, Bill Murray. He makes a full-time living off of music and he has like 170,000 monthly Spotify listeners, which again, that's respectable, but that's not anything crazy. The emo rapper Fatsy has around the same and he's been making a full-time living off of, and he doesn't really even play shows. Neither of them play very many shows. And they've both been making a living off of streaming with you know less than 200,000 uh, Spotify listeners. So my point with all of this that I want everyone to take away from it is it, it, it doesn't matter how many followers you have. It matters what what your relationship is with them and what you do with it. For example, people want to work with you because if you say nice things about a $3,000 guitar, people will buy it. Exactly. Well, not all of them, but the people that have got a lot of money will. <laughs> yeah. but And that's another thing that I think is interesting about the Gent fans is um, I do think that they have more money than a lot of fans. Like, if you look at periphery fans, for example, which I, I'm familiar with because I've worked with them a lot, a lot of them are in, in STEM fields. There's a lot of like engineers and scientists and people like that that are into periphery who make a decent amount of money. So for them to drop 2,500 bucks on a guitar is like, you know, that's that's doable as compared to, you know, some street punk band like the Casualties where getting their fans to pay for Taco Bell is probably a stretch. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. Taco Bell. It's not good, is it? <laughs> it depends who you ask. But my point is, like, I don't know if you deliberately chose to do this or not. Probably not, because I, it, it, it wasn't clear to me until fairly recently. But like, 
you found a niche that happens to monetize extremely well, which is gent fans. And like, that's the big takeaway to me is like, find that niche of people who, you know, are willing to pay to support things they like and build a dedicated following within that niche. And it doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't. And I also think that nearly anyone is willing to support something that they like. So if they like what you're doing, then they will support it. And what I mean by that is you need consistency. I think that is the most important thing out of all of it. What does consistency mean to you? Like just making sure that you are constantly doing, being in the spotlight, basically, in a non-narcissistic way. I didn't mean that narcissistically, like, you know, me, 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 me. But just posting videos regularly, you know, and posting Instagram posts regularly. Just make sure that you found your niche and that you stick to it and you trust your gut. Most importantly, trust your gut. Because if you don't trust what you're doing, then how can you expect anyone else to do it, to trust it? So tell me, what, what does that mean? Like, have you ever, have you ever, did you learn that the hard way or tell me more about that? It, it, it's more to do with like, say you want to become a musician, trusting the music that you're writing. And if you think it sucks when you've written it, then how can you expect anyone else to write, to want to like it? So when you're writing this music, if you think it's good, then trust that feeling and just stick with it. It might take years. And I think Sugar is a really good example of this. The fact that I don't, I don't think anyone really paid that much attention to them until 2008 when Obsen came out. I heard them in 1995 and nobody gave a shit about that band in America for years and years and years and years after that. No, and that was the same month that D Manufacture came out. That album, Future Breed Machine, no, not Future Breed Machine, Destroy Arrays Improve, came out the same month as D Manufacture by Fear Factory. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. And it is, isn't it? Because it's kind of like those two bands were kind of doing the similar thing, but Fear Factory got ahead. I think maybe because it was more commercial and more understandable, and they were already American. Right. That's interesting. That's crazy to think because Fear Factory, I mean, I think Fear Factory is great, but you know, you compare their sort of position now, and I would say Meshuggah is 100 times more relevant than Fear Factory is. I think it's mainly just because Meshuggah was more complex as well, and it just took longer. And we've seen this in with loads of other bands in the past as well. I mean, I think Candiria is a very good example of that, a band that's way ahead of their time. Because if they came out now, Everyone would fucking love it. Yes. You know, those albums like uh, 300% Density and uh, um, What Doesn't Kill You Only Makes You Stronger. Yeah. I think if they came out 10 years later than they did, that that band would be huge. Yep. Yeah. You could sell that to all the Dillinger fans and they'd eat it all up. It's weird because they were around at the same time, but Mm -hmm. Dillinger just just got... Well, I mean, Dillinger, it took them a while as well, I think. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, and they're, they're still not a huge band and that's another good example of it like we have a there's a perception of dillinger like there's some enormous band and i mean they're certainly successful but they're not huge yeah i mean uh, the last time i saw them before they split up i saw them at coco in london which is 1500 cap as a headliner and that is not a big band by any means that is that's just a band that's doing all right right but they have done very well for themselves playing super weird music Again, because they found that niche and they built a really strong relationship with those fans. Uh, Jason Richardson is another example of this. You know, Animals as Leaders is a great example of it. The most like weird music, inaccessible music in the world. Uh, and, and, you know, they do great. 
So for anybody listening who, you know, thinks that they have to play some really commercial stuff that will have an audience in the millions in order to like make a great living, you don't. I mean, all the examples we just listed are proof of that. You can do weird shit and be super successful with it, but you do have to be consistent and execute like you just said. I think it's all about conversion rate. That's the most important thing, isn't it? Yes, it totally is. So that brings us, I think, to Riff Hard. So you've built your following as a musician, not just as a guy in a band, but also a profile of yourself as a guitarist and an influencer in the gear world. And so people notice you and offer you various opportunities. One of those is Riff Hard. When and how did that become a conversation? It had actually been a conversation for a few years before even um, Al. So Al Levy, who you've known for years, um, actually approached me about it. I was approached by someone else about two or three years before, but decided not to pursue it because I, in my mind, I was like, no one's going to care about this. But then the way that Al presented it to me, it was like, oh, people might actually care about this. So. That's when I decided to pursue it. And that was in 2000 and at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, I think that that sort of conversation started happening. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was kind of like AL saying, hey, you should do this. I guess that he saw the niche. And then what, what happened after that? How long did it take to actually turn that into something that was live to the world? We started uh, filming the content in, I want to say, April 2017. Sounds right. And then we filmed three times, once in Wisconsin, twice in Florida at the old URM facility, actually, mm -hmm. which is Andrew Wade's studio. I think I filmed for about seven weeks, maybe eight weeks total of filming. And then obviously the mammoth editing job to do all that video footage, build a site, get everything into place. So by the time we launched, it was October 2018, which basically worked out great because it's the the same month that the last monuments album came out mm -hmm. yep that's right and so you launched and what happened at first no one really clocked onto it i think that with anything in its first instance it just takes time and that goes back to consistency just making sure that you're constantly updating the information informing people posting about it all the time when I say all the time, not just not haggling people about it, just posting when there's something cool to talk about. So yeah, we got from October 2018 and we came all the way through to 2020 with maybe three, 400 mm -hmm. total, which has now bloomed into something quite amazing with some absolutely phenomenal guitar players on that platform. I've seen some transformations that you wouldn't believe. So it was a good year and a half or something like that of kind of toiling away and, you know, seeing some success, but not taking off the way that, you know, that you had hoped it would. Anything just needs time. Basically. Imagine you've got a hangover. What do you need? Time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What was the, was there anything specific that you and the other guys started doing that made that difference? Not really. I think the, there, there was a combination of two things that kind of made it go where it was. And one is the consistency. I keep talking about it. It's just so important. People don't want to put their money into something until they see that it actually is working. And that yep. just is time. 
And then the second thing is, is that over the last three months, a lot of people have had a lot of time on their hands to to up their skills on the guitar. And I think that that has also played a pretty big role into why it just jumped up so much in the last six months, seven months. What about the community stuff? That that seems to me something that made a big difference, but maybe I'm wrong. Huge difference. Huge difference. Like if you think about it, when you get a guitar lesson, normally you would normally just be one-on-one with your teacher and you'd have an hour and it costs you, what, 30 bucks? Yeah. And then after that hour, there would be nothing else coming from that $30. Whereas when it comes to Riffard, you get to not only learn all the stuff on the site, but you get to also talk to all the people that are also on the site and, you know, communicate with them, make new friends and maybe even make a band or write music with. So it's a completely different experience. And I think that that is a huge part of what makes Riphard so appealing to these people. And you were doing all that stuff pretty much on your own for a while and you hired somebody to help you out with that. Yes, who was actually a uh, former member and he made some of the biggest improvements in his playing that I've seen. He has turned into an absolutely amazing guitar player. So he sucked before, but now he's good. I wouldn't say he sucked. <laughs> I think it's like anyone, you know, when you you just need a little bit of pointing in the right direction. Yeah, I think it's probably the correct term. It's just like focusing on the right things. I think that we as guitar players, and in fact, actually any field, if you're focusing on the wrong things, then you won't see improvements as fast as other people. I think that's also a reason why some people get better quicker. It's just that the things that they're focusing on. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why they got, you know, you see these guitar players that have been playing for two years and they're just ridiculous. And it's like, why wasn't I that good for two years, after two years? And it's because they were just focusing on the right things. So my perception of this, and tell me, tell me what you think, is that the community stuff was happening before, but it, you know, it's impossible for you to give it your full attention. By community stuff, what I mean is basically the Facebook group. So interacting with people, asking them to post stuff commenting on their posts, that sort of thing, so that it's, you know, as you said, uh, a community of peers hanging out with each other and getting better at guitar rather than just a site where you go watch some videos. That seems like it made a big difference to me. And it seems like hiring him was the the thing that made that stuff happen a lot more consistently. Yes, definitely. Obviously, there's only a certain amount of hours in the day. You got like there's you know if if I'm going to be filming videos and all of this stuff I can't spend ten hours a day replying to absolutely everything so I kind of get him to sort of push people in the in the right direction. So how how did you find him? I mean, and I know him a little bit, not as well as you do, but he's really the kind of person, sort of like Nick, that works for URM that feel like you just sort of say you point him over there and say, hey, that thing over there that's okay now, like make it better, and then they just do, <laughs> and you don't have to. Yeah. You don't have to give them a lot of direction. Maybe you give them a little feedback, but pretty much you just turn them loose and they'll make it better. And those people are so hard to find. How did he come your way? As I say, he was a he was a member and I saw what he was doing beforehand. And he was actually hassling me to say like, oh, I'll help you with your socials. I know that you're doing all this stuff so I can work out that you don't actually have any time like um, to do all this sort of stuff. So yeah, he's definitely... And, He's definitely helped a lot in that aspect. And um, I kind of let him loose. So I went on tour. Um, right, right, just, right. I hired him. And I was like, right, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to see what he does. It was kind of like a test without telling him. And he did such a great job. Because obviously when you're on tour, 
then then my time's even more reduced because I'm you know setting up gear or having yeah. to sell merch or something like that. And everyone um, says that they're gonna do get stuff done on tour. I only know one person who is actually productive on tour, and that's Matt Halpern. And you know, that's not to say that everyone else sucks. It's just like the reality of being on tour, I think, is a lot more chaotic than people realize. And I just don't think it's realistic to think that you're going to be fully productive on tour. I think it depends on the situation around the tour. Like, say you had techs, as in, you know, a drum tech, a guitar tech, or some, you know, you're in a bus, then it makes it entirely feasible to sort of do other things. But when you don't have that, you kind of just want to sleep. <laughs> right. You're not getting enough of it anyway. So I think it's totally dependent on situation. So another good example of someone that gets shit done on tour is Matt Heafy as well. Oh, I can imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. He's a very regimented, organized person. Yes. Well, actually, Paul Ortiz as well. So Paul Ortiz, who I was talking about earlier, Chimp Spanner, one of the first founders, he actually filled in for monuments on tour. And we were in a van tour and he was working in the van every single day. I still can't believe it, actually. I don't know really how understand how he managed to do that. Yeah, working in a van. Man, that's I, I don't know how <laughs> anybody could do that. So to me, that's like kind of the magic formula is like what you said as far as like what made Riff Hard work. I mean, first of all, you had the raw materials, which is that you had like the credibility and following as a guitarist to like be able to like I couldn't start Riff Hard because I'm not credible as a guitarist. So you you had that. And then you found someone in AL and along with Joey and Joel to kind of help you put together the parts that, you know, you didn't have as much experience with and that worked okay. And then you persistently kept looking at like, what's wrong with this? That's not making it click the way you want it to. And also just put in the time to just stubbornly keep adding more content and telling people about it and stuff. You finally found the right team. And to me, that's like what made it take off the way that it has. It's just all about, you know, if everyone shares the vision, that's kind of what it is, isn't it? It's like, yeah, you only I wouldn't say you go as far as your weakest link, but to a degree, that's what it is. And so it's all about just finding the right team that believe in the message that you're trying to do. Yeah. And same goes with like anything to do with music labels, managers, just make sure that they share the same values. Well, not values, but sort of. uh vision for what it is you wanted to do. You know, there's a lot of times when I was younger that I had started some project, whether that was a band or anything else with people who, you know, I liked, but I realized fairly quickly that like we had a different vision and I frustrated myself so much, like trying to change their mind and get them to see things my way and stuff. And in hindsight, I should have just walked away from them as soon as it became clear that we didn't have the same vision. I, I think that's very, very good advice. <laughs> Nothing wrong with like it's I'm not putting them down. It's just like, OK, we want different things here, so we should not work together anymore. That would have been probably way less stressful. Um, well, <laughs> For both of us. Yeah. I mean, it, well, initially, it probably would have been quite stressful to leave something that you loved, but ultimately it would have saved a lot of time as well. Yeah. You just I guess my my point there is like you can't force people to change the way that they see things or the way that they work. Um, even if you're right, it, it doesn't matter. It sounds like inception to me. It sounds like you need to get the idea, make them think that it's their idea. It's reverse psychology. <laughs> That's a big one too. But even then it's like, 
if I have to constantly like persuade and convince and trick this person into like doing the right thing, is that are they the right person? That's actually very true as well. You reckon you would have got on with those people for like six weeks in a van if you're talking about a band that is? No, absolutely not. I would have gotten <laughs> I would have gotten really frustrated with them and probably been an asshole to them. And they would have been like, what's his fucking problem? And they would have hated me and the whole thing would have imploded. And, you know, it's nobody's fault. It's just like, I think with experience, you sort of learn to step back and realize that, okay, this is a situation where we're just fundamentally not on the same page and it's probably best to just step away. And it's best to do that in any situation. (laughs) I think so. I mean, unless it's life or death. Unless it's life or death, yeah. I would say that it's good to actually just reflect and maybe even just plan a little bit. If I quit this, right. is it going to make this better? If I don't quit it, is am I going to be able to make something of it? So right. it's all about just balance in a way, isn't it? Just making sure it's right for you. Well, let me end this by asking you for some advice because there's a lot of people that talk that ask me about this. People that have like, a gear uh, focused YouTube channel or Instagram account or something like that, that I think would love to be, you know, a guitar influencer of some level uh, or drum, whatever, like an influencer in the kind of gear world. What would you suggest to someone like that, that has a couple hundred, you know, friends and family kind of followers, what should they do? They should definitely firstly find their niche. And when I say that, I mean, people like to, to get, familiar with people's personalities. So firstly, you have to you know, let your personality shine um, and find your little part of the musical world that's slightly different to what everyone else is doing. So that involves research. Just look around, see what you like, and then try and make your own thing from it. When There's no point reinventing the wheel because you're never going to be able to invent something that hasn't been done before. So you may as well just get some inspiration from somewhere else. And then secondly, I would say that learning marketing to some degree is a massive part of it. You know, actually understanding Facebook and Instagram and the hashtags and all the other really boring stuff that actually makes it. (laughs) Definitely does. It's, you know, it is boring and it's constantly changing as well. Like the algorithms for Instagram and Facebook consistently changing. I mean, we see it every so often where you get posts from two days ago or you don't see all your friends' posts anymore or you know you have to press another button to make sure that you see your bands. Right. Or certain kinds of content. Like we used to be able to post on the URM, the URM channel, I used to be able to post just a sort of random clip of somebody mixing a snare and it would get you know 50,000 views in a month. And now nobody cares about that kind of content because it's so saturated. Exactly. That's what I'm saying by finding your niche. And you have to constantly update it as well. So you can't just stick to one thing. Well, maybe you're lucky and you'd be able to. Um, but that would be luck, I think. I think that just like constantly try and update what you're doing, try and find new things, new ways to explore your personality, basically. Because it's your personality that they want. That's what they want. So somebody like, I guess most of the people who hit me up about this are posting like gear reviews or demos or photos of gear and there's nothing wrong with it. Like, it's fine, but there's nothing different about it either. Well, you can still do that. People like that stuff, which is why it still happens. But it's about mixing it up with other things that people might necessarily haven't done. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I mean, Ola farts and burps in his videos. Yep. That makes it funny. 
Yep. And people like Ola for that. I love watching Ola for that. <laughs> I can't wait till this next birth. <laughs> but think about something like niche like that. Not, not, I'm not saying for you to fart in your videos, but there's something that explains what you are. Like, for example, have you seen that channel Circle of Tone? Or maybe you know that guy. No, I haven't, actually. He's a British guy. I forget his name, but it's a cool channel. Uh, he does these really elaborate videos where he'll try to recreate the tone from a particular, like, say, typo negative or something like that. Yes, I have seen him. Yes. And it's cool because he will, like, you know, go through old, like, VHSs or something like that to, like, just catch a glimpse of, like, oh, I think it's this random old delay pedal you know he like it's like a, he's like a detective to just like find out what the piece of gear was and then figure out how to dial in the rest of the signal chain but like he really makes it a whole story of like how he figures out what they what they used or well they used this thing but those things cost five thousand dollars now and i couldn't get one but here's the closest thing i could get you know that kind of thing and so then by the time he actually starts dialing in the tone like he's told you this whole story and you're so excited to hear what it actually sounds like that actually, I need to watch some more of that because that actually sounds really fun. In fact, I actually watched a YouTube the other day and it was a guy that cleaned and replaced switches. <laughs> and I don't know why I was so interested in it, but these switches, you know, the things you got on electronic gear. Yeah. Like to turn it on and off. Normally we would just throw it away if it was broken, but this guy used to just polish them and clean them and make them work again. <laughs> I, for some reason, I found it really interesting. I watched it for like an hour. Uh-huh. And just stuff like, you know, like that, it's, it, I would never have thought of doing that. You know, it's just so specific and niche. Yeah. But how many people are actually doing that? That's the other thing. So that's what I'm saying by find your niche. So like, for example, what if all you talked about was delay pedals? I mean, some people would love that. Yeah. I guess it depends on how big you want to be, but are there 5,000 people out there who would love to watch a channel about delay pedals? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, that sounds actually like something I would want to watch. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and you become an authority on this thing by focusing on it like that, because if you've reviewed a hundred different delay pedals or delay plugins or whatever, it's like you want to be like the first person that people think about for your particular thing. Like for me, I would say that on YouTube, if you think about like metalcore, I'm probably the first person that comes to mind. And, you know, you can think that that you can decide whether that's a good or bad thing but like that's my thing you know that's the sort of thing i'm interested in exactly yeah i mean like if you think about it as well say you made that channel of delay pedals then eventually the companies would take wins that you're only reviewing or demoing these delay pedals then they're going to approach you saying hey i've got this new cool delay pedal do you want to feature it on your channel um and there you go there's your money again because you are because there's you have that relationship where your opinion matters and you will be able to sell product for them. Exactly. That's and, what it comes down to. And everybody's got a delay pedal and everyone wants to sell it. And these other channels probably aren't going to care that much about a delay pedal because what does well in most gear channels is like amps or overdrives. Exactly. Yeah. It's so, actually, that's actually a really good idea. Maybe there's something already like that, but I've not seen it. I mean, it's, there's a lot of things that seem obvious. Like for example, the, the fact that nobody made a fucking video about like any of these big metalcore bands that I talk about is insane to me. Wait, what? Nobody has ever made a video like I have about say like Attack Attack or Black Veil Brides or something like that. These, I mean, Black Veil Brides is a Billboard top 10 band. 
nobody has ever made like an actual like substantial serious video about black veil brides other than me <laughs> which is weird to me because it's not like they're a small band no i think it was just may i mean they're still around now right yeah yeah they are yeah i was gonna say that maybe it's just because they came out before the boom of youtube but i mean maybe just no one no one thought about it so nobody made a video like that about bring me the horizon until i did what really yeah it's bizarre and my point is that there's all these niches out there. For example, like in guitar, what I would really like to see, and I don't care about that much about guitar stuff anymore, but what I would really like to see is somebody that reviews the old like 80s rack mount stuff. Oh, that would be sick. What, like the ADA preamps? Yes, and, uh... and like Rocktron Chameleon and Piranha and all that kind of stuff. Ah, uh, yes, that'd actually be a cool channel. That'd be a great channel. Like if you have you ever seen Lazy Game Reviewer, LGR? Yes. Yep. Like so he reviews all this like classical PC hardware. Like he'll do a he'll build a win a Windows 98 gaming PC, for example, using old <laughs> like vintage parts. And by the That's way, he has like one and a half million subscribers. It's amazing. I actually I, I watched something similar. Do you remember that old games console? It was made by Goodman's. Um and it was like a huge it was like a disc console i can't even remember the name of it because it was such a big flop but it came out at the same time as playstation one. Oh, the 3do that's it yes yeah. the 3do that's the one yeah and i like i think that that sort of thing is so like it's so popular but no one's actually focused on doing it for the guitar gear like yeah i've got this old marshall blah 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 and they do one video on it but no one's actually just done just 80s rack gear and there's a lot of it there's a, that's a shitload of it and a shitload of it sounds fucking great as well. Yes, it does. I love that. Like Rock Turn Chameleon, Jun Jun kind of sound. It's perfect for that stuff. <laughs> you know, did you have one of those? I did. Yes, I had a MP1. I had a Chameleon and I had a, an obscure Rocktron one called the Pro Gap. I've never even heard of the Pro Gap. Uh, it's similar to like the Piranha. It's a little bit more limited. But if you want that solid state Jun Jun kind of sound, then you could probably get one on eBay for 75 bucks. It sounds like the perfect channel. Just imagine like trying all those old Randalls as well and all just like all of it. Yeah, like a solid state. Well, if you had like a solid state gear channel, I think that'd be a great idea. I think so too, because it's normally looked down upon, but so many records have been recorded with those solid state amps. Like, right. I actually have one right here that I bought for 60 English pounds and it's a, a Marshall Valve State 8100. That they used on all the old Morrison records? Yeah. Death as well, you know. Chuck. Yeah, yeah. Everything at Morris Sound, they use that that Marshall valve state. It's because it sounds great. It's instantaneously Gothenburg metal. It's yep. instant. It's it's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> so point being, we could we could nerd out about this uh, old guitar gear all day long. But point being is, if you think an idea is too obscure, that's probably a sign that you're onto something because it's really just all about how well you execute a niche obscure idea i think i think so too find your niche and conquer it perfect way to end it well john thanks so much for joining us uh where can people find you and riff hard if any of this sounds cool to them so it's uh https double dot slash slash riffhard.com brown monuments on instagram and this is monuments of course cool well thank you so much for joining us and uh i will talk to you soon i'm sure thank you very much finn i'll see you soon man all right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. 
Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.